Thank you, Mike. I'm just going to pray for us all. My God, my Lord and my God, would you open our eyes to see with your eyes. Thank you for your spirit which helps us understand scripture. Amen. So, I wonder what you think of when I say millennium. Do you think Robbie Williams? Do you think Millennium Falcon and Star Wars? Or the turning over of the millennium? Where were you when the clocks moved? Um, there were <laughs> some of you were together. How lovely! Um, I was in Ocean Village. Uh, looking out over the most astonishing fireworks display and it really was incredibly memorable. Now if there is one word that is going to spark controversy in the whole of the series that we're doing on Revelation, it is going to be the word millennium. Yes, and that's what we're talking about this morning. Well let's just make it a little bit more tricky by adding in the end of the world. Let's add in death. Resurrection. Should we make that one or two resurrections? And uh, Satan is defeated, oh, but then there's a reprieve and he comes back again. And, oh, a bit of judgment. There's those who make it to heaven and those who don't. Okay, no pressure then. No pressure for this morning. But what we are going to do is this. We're going to recap the story so far. Um, Hello to those of you who are new to Christchurch for the first time. <laughs> what a Sunday to pick. Um, then we're going to add in some context. We're going to look at the millennium, some possible answers. Uh, we're going to look at the, some of the nasty bits, but not too many of them. And for those of you who are online, I just want to say you are the winners this morning because you can go straight away and get the double espresso and the pen and the paper. And for all of us here, do something to kind of get the air flowing and wake up because I'm going to go fast and it's going to be a lot of information, but there is one supremely important takeaway at the end of it that should change every single step that every one of us takes when we leave the building today. Okay, so stay with the complicated bits, touch your toes, get the chin gum out, get a fan, whatever you need to do to stay with it, but I urge you to, to do that this morning. Okay, let's go. Recap. The story so far, John the seer is in the island of Patmos. He's writing down visions from God. So this book is full of prophecy, poetry. It's a letter, and of course it is revelation. But it's not really called revelation because the Greek word was originally apocalypse. But when the Bible was translated into English, they didn't really know how to deal with the word apocalypse, so they called it revelation. So there we are, we've got quite a random title to this book, but we know it is canon scripture, so we know it's important. Context is everything, as James said in the video we just watched, context is everything. You really had to be there to understand it. So I can tell you about this amazing fireworks display that I saw as the century rolled over. But actually, to really understand the impact of the sky being lit up with 2,000 in fireworks over the water, it would have been helpful if you'd been there. So, we can't go back in time, so we have to think, what would it have been like to have been there 
context is everything. So it's the same here. We have to read Revelation looking at the Old Testament. The prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel are crucial. We then have to add in the lens of the New Testament to understand the centrality of God becoming man through Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and how we too can know God through Christ is critically important to the passage of scripture that Mike so beautifully read for us. Think Indiana Jones. Okay, he's piecing together how to get the Holy Grail or get into the Temple of Doom. He's got fragments of the story, so he needs to piece it together to find out what the real story is. Okay, we're going to hardwire into the millennium and absolutely beltingly massive thanks to Brian Wakelin for this. And here I can say, first slide, please, a la Chris Whitty. In fact, don't panic because there is only one slide, but I just wanted to say it. First slide, please. So this is all Brian Wakelin's work. I've done nothing other than sit at the feet of Gamaliel and, and learn. Um, so... There are four schools of thought. I'm going to briefly outline each one of them and then come to a conclusion which may or may not be relevant to us today. I like to think it would be. So stay with me. There are pros and cons to each one of these points of view. The greatest theologians in the world can't agree. So we're just going to have to float it up there and leave it up there. But just so that we know what we're talking about the millennium for a few minutes, I'm going to do just a couple of moments on each section. Okay, so let's start top left. So the whole left-hand column is one section. The right-hand column is another section. And on the left, this is massively simplified, okay? On the left, the two columns on the left are as if a starting pistol has been fired by God and that the millennium is an actual time sequence. The right-hand columns are pictorial, as James is saying in the video. They're allegorical. It's, it's a broad brush, a, a millennium, a thousand years. So left-hand column, first of all, this is an actual time sequence. Starting top left, historic premillennialism. Okay, this says that the wars and the rumors of wars now herald the return of Christ. Satan is bound and then the clock starts, titting, starts ticking. Some saints rule with Christ on earth, then Satan is loosed again and there's a final judgment. Now, this view was very, very widely held in the early church. Papius, Justin, Arrhenius, Tertullian all thought this was what was happening. So, you know, these are not foolish people. So it follows a natural order. It follows a chronological sequence. Think creation, okay? There's two stories of creation in the Bible. One is day, night, day, night, day, night. And the other is a broad brush picture of creation. So that's what we've got here too. Generally, two views, an actual time sequence of the millennium and a broad brush. Bottom left plays tunes on this, dispensational premillennialism. And this is actually where a lot of churches are now, especially in North America and in the developing world. 
So it's got roots in brethren thinking, and it takes a very literal view of what the Bible says. Moving swiftly to the right-hand column, we're now in this pictorial scene. So if I say, oh, I'm, I'm late, I must fly, I don't mean, oh, I'm just getting in my helicopter, which is parked in the car park. I mean, I've, I've got a dash. Think Shakespeare, think Puck, think A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay, Titania and Oberon, they're having a bit of a barney over a, a boy slave that they want, a servant they want. And when Titania refuses, Oberon sends Puck off to get a magic flower to create mischief. So he says, um, Puck in obedience says, I'll put a girdle around the earth in 40 minutes. Now, does he mean, right, it's going to take me 40 minutes to circumnavigate the earth? It's a broad brush. Yes, sir, I'll put a girdle around the earth in 40 minutes. He means, I'll be quick. It'll be done in a jiffy. Two shakes of a lamb's tail, as my mum would say. So in our right-hand column, we've got a millennium. Take Psalm 50. God is heard speaking to the earth for every animal in the, of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills the cattle on a thousand hills it's a big picture picture a sweep of the arm post millennium okay right hand column says there's a point in time when the millennium starts but we don't know when that is and we don't know how long it will last it's a massive paraphrase it's quite difficult to make this particular theory hold because it means, without going into massive detail, that the millennium should have started now. So we should be in happy times. We should be in great times of, of joy, of, of God reigning. Well, the theory collapsed when it got to the First World War. And look around us, it's not exactly um, a time like that now. Any millennialism... <coughs> This suggests that we entered a new phase when Jesus came to earth. One second. <clears throat> really at the point of the ascension. So this is the massive moment when we entered a new phase, a new era. The now and not yet, as many great people call it. So we're called to live as followers of Christ. We don't know when his return is going to be. We don't know how long this time phrase is. But we know that as soon as Jesus came to earth, died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, something shifted spiritually so that we're in a new era, we're in a new phase. Thy kingdom come, we pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this calls heaven down to now so that every day should count in how we live. So this is where I am, absolutely paid up member. I'm definitely in this last camp, the now and not yet, the amillennialist camp, along with Ian Paul, Tom Wright. There are pros and cons to every single way of thinking, but I'm just going to explain how, if my suggestion, which I offer to you in a minute, is correct, every single step that each one of us takes out of this building should be different. If we really are going to live in the now and not yet, we have to live differently.
It's all a mystery. It's a mystery, as Paul says. Okay, two quick bits of evidence, and then we're on to how it impacts us. And this is just for the, those of you who want just a little bit extra, and you can talk to myself or Amanda or Brian afterwards. But this, to me, just proves uh, the amillennialist millennialist theory. Um, the first... Verse 4, I'll say this quickly, so keep up. Um, I, I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given the authority to judge. Well, this is actually straight out of Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 is clearly referring to a heavenly time of reigning rather than an earthly time frame. So for me, this suggests that, that the millennium is not right now. We're in a now and not yet. We're not in a millennium, a thousand year time frame. The second is this, Gog and Magog. Here we dive back to Ezekiel 38. Magog is a nation in the far north of Israel, and Gog is its king. But when John writes about it here, Gog and Magog are two different bits of land, and John is using it to describe the earth, the ends of the earth, the four corners of the earth. So he's using symbolism. So to me, symbolism is hugely important. And a, a third thing, too, I call on Miss Eliza Doolittle of um, My Fair Lady Fame to help explain something that is happening in chapter 20. So uh, when she sings, I won't try and do the accent, absolutely. Okay, she's putting a word in the middle of another word. It's called tamesis. Thank you, my husband, for telling me this. Um, and there are many versions of it, but absolutely. So chapter 20 is the blooming in the sentence absolutely, in that it doesn't actually fit. If you theologically look at the chronological sequence of 18, 19, 20, 21, 20, you know, it, it's... it's like that inverted thing when you have to kind of add in a bit in a sentence. So, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't quite add up, which makes me think it's a millennium, and it makes me believe that it's the now and the not yet. So how then shall we live? This is the crux of it. And this is what Paul says time and time again in his letters as he's writing in the New Testament. The millennium represents this present church age, which demands we do something about how we live. This is where Paul starts to say, how do we live? In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of the wise women who kept spare oil for their lamps. We need to stay ready. We need to take a moment to think, what does it mean to keep our lamps ready, to keep the oil in our lamps or ready by the side? How do we stay alert? The scariest bit about this theory is that we have got no idea when the Savior will return. We've really got no idea. So how do I live in the meantime? How, how do I live? How does that change my view? If I thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would I do today? 
The nasty bits in this passage are, are pretty grim. I'm not going to go into it now, but please talk to me afterwards. Please talk to Brian. Please talk to Amanda. But one question I have genuinely wrestled with is why Satan allowed back for a reprieve? I thought, you know, let's get rid of evil. But for some reason, he's allowed back. I don't know why that is. It just makes me think of the Lord of the Rings and, and Gollum. You know, he had a part to play right until the end, didn't he? We couldn't really work out why. Maybe Tolkien saw something in that and something in Revelation that, that we can't see. Well, one thing is very clear, though. At the moment after the devil is allowed to run amok again, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet all end up as toast. Verse 10, it, 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 they're all in the burning lake. They're all finished. Like if I've broken a glass, as I do regularly in our house, I, I, when I clear it up, I don't try and rinse out the cloth that I've cleared it up with. I put the whole lot in the bin. You know, I, I don't want any fragments of sharpness left. So it's almost like God is putting the whole lot in the bin, like evil is allowed back and then everything 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 is in the bin so so what does that mean for us and that means two really important things so not only how then should we live there are two things i'm going to leave you with the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing that's what we say in our family so the whole series title is called Bringing God's Truth into Focus. And I have to quote from Tom Wright here because I just can't get it right. So we must hold on to the central things which John has made crystal clear, the victory of the Lamb and the call to share his victory through faith and patience. God will then do what God will then do. So we have faith and we have patience and God will do what God is going to do. So, two lenses as we finish. Think of two glasses. One, two. Okay, hope. Big fat message in this is hope. You might be surprised by that, but Tom Wright's written a whole amazing book called Surprised by Hope. Romans 8, Paul writes, The hope in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And the second is this, and this really is the blockbuster. Death is defeated. Death is defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, And the end will come, Paul writes, and he hands over the kingdom God to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Time and time again, I come back to the, the picture in scripture uh, where we um, look through a glass darkly, the old-fashioned silvered mirrors. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Or the King James Version, which is magnificent. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, hope and death defeated. So we look at the millennium through the end times of an old mirror. One day we will see our Saviour face to face. Creator God wins the victory by putting this total end to death. However that happens. And one day will open the way to the glory of a new creation. So what is crucial today, and I leave you with this question, is how do we live in the light of this now and not yet? What does it mean for each one of us? This lunchtime, this afternoon, today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives on earth? Well, why don't you, I, ask him? Amen.